The Fuzzy Mike presents This Week in Sports. Happy New Year and welcome to 2022. You know, when you can start a year off by saying the NCAA actually got it right, well, then you know the year has gotten off to a weird start. Yes, the NCAA will crown a football national champion on Monday night, and they will be a definitive champion. You see, this year, the NCAA gave an undefeated Power 5 team in Cincinnati a shot, seating them at number four in the semifinals. There they are in Cincinnati. Wait. Having the watch party, having the banquet. They want to see that. They want to see that name at number four. Uh, they're, they're wanting to wait. Hey! Michigan earned their way into the Final Four for sure. But all season long, the two best teams in the country were the two teams that will square off in Indy in two days, Alabama and Georgia. 41-24, the Crimson Tide will take the victory formation at the 38 of the Bulldogs. There are the detractors and SEC haters who will poo-poo this game. But if the goal is to pit the two best teams against each other, as it should be, then I don't think you can argue this matchup. But then again, we do live in a country where people still believe OJ didn't do it. So I guess anything can be argued. And as long as I'm pontificating, here are some thoughts on this. The 10th and final year that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens will appear on the Hall of Fame ballots. To get inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, a player needs better than 75% of ballots cast for election. Bonds and Clemens aren't in the hall yet because they are linked to baseball's steroids era. I emphasize yet because ballots have already been cast and early indications are that they are both trending towards induction. And they should be. Major League Baseball implemented its drug policy after the 2004 season. So, even if we assume and that's what we're doing because neither Bonds nor Clemens were punished, suspended, or ever proven guilty of anything, even if we assume that they were juiced. Then let's remove every stat after 2004. No, wait. Let's remove 2004 also, and let's see how they stack up in their most recognizable categories. For Bonds, that's home runs. Here comes Barry Bonds to the plate. Feet close together. Routing the plate, deep in the batter's box. Here it comes. Fastball swung on and driven into deep left center. Back goes Holiday at the warning track at the wall. It's gone. A home run. Barry Bonds with his 28th home run of the year. Number 762 lifetime. In making my case for Barry Bonds to be inducted into the hall, I am going to eliminate the final eight years of his career the years where his home run totals increased dramatically. So I'm horrible at math, so bear with me. That's 762 total home runs, minus 317 home runs from 2000 to 2008, which leaves 445 home runs. That puts him, let's see, 43rd on the all-time list, just behind Hall of Famers Jeff Bagwell and Vladimir Guerrero, and ahead of Andre Dawson, Cal Ripken Jr., Mike Piazza, and many other legends of the game. Now, for Roger Clemens, his Cy Young Awards and strikeouts are his defining stats. In the decade of the 1980s, without question, Roger Clemens was the most dominant pitcher in the game. 
His 13-year run in Boston was marked by a pair of incredible feats. Clemens has set a major league record for strikeouts in a game. 20. He's the only man ever to reach those heights twice. So here we go. Rocket ended his career sitting third on the all-time strikeouts list with 4,672 total Ks and a record seven Cy Young Awards. Now, removing everything from 2000 and beyond, that leaves Roger Clemens with 3,316 career strikeouts, which would put him 12th on the all-time list in front of Hall of Famers Bob Gibson, Pedro Martinez, John Smoltz, even Cy Young himself. Which leads us to how many of his seven total Cy Young Awards Roger won before the year 2000. That would be five, which would still give him the most, tied with Hall of Famer Randy Johnson. The point is, both Bonds and Clemens were shoe-in Hall of Famers even before the steroid era of baseball. The main reason they aren't in is because the voters are the Baseball Writers Association of America. And Bonds and Clemens both had contentious relationships with the media throughout their careers. Let me explain the Baseball Writers Association of America. They're that smart high school kid who's in love with the captain of the cheerleading squad. You know, just now I really felt how much you like me. I'm probably zoning in on my brainwaves or something. Well, not really. I felt it on my leg. Come on, I don't want to see it. Oh, sorry if I embarrassed you. I'm not embarrassed. Fresh breath's priority in my life. But she won't give him the time of day until she needs something. But he's been shunned by her so many times that it's his way of getting revenge by not helping her. Waiting until the 10th and final year of eligibility to put Bonds and Clemens in the hall is the writer's way of flexing their scrawny muscle and also, their way of saying the pen is mightier than the alleged needle. Okay, now for the wacky. When are coaches going to learn? We don't live in the era of Bear Bryant or Bobby Knight anymore. We live in the participation trophy era where everything is fair and as long as you show up, you're a winner. A Connecticut high school has apologized and suspended a coach after its girls basketball team beat an overmatched opponent 92-4. Sacred Heart Academy led their opponent, Lyman Hall, 29-0 after one quarter, 56-0 at halftime, and 80-0 after three quarters. Sacred Heart's president says, the school is deeply remorseful about how the game was played and suspended girls basketball coach Jason Kirk. Before this game, Sacred Heart won by scores of 83-48 and 80-37. Lyman Hall's coach said his team was pressed through most of the first half, and Sacred Heart continued to run its fast break and shoot three-pointers with the game well out of hand. That explains how Sacred Heart racked up 92 points. What it doesn't explain is why Lyman Hall only scored four points. If a team is running the fast break and jacking up threes every trip down the floor, that leaves plenty of time on the clock for the other team to either employ the same strategy and get into a shootout, or what Princeton University used to do under head coach Pete Carrill when they were outmatched in the NCAA tournament. But, uh, 
David and Goliath matchup, if there ever was one here tonight. Pete Carrill, one of the most respected coaches in the profession on the Princeton bench, has a great reputation of making other teams do what he wants to do as opposed to vice versa. Slow the game down. Someone who's not slowing down. I'm ultra runner, Alexander Sorokin. Um, world record holder. 24 hours, 12 hours, 100, 100 miles. That's Lithuanian ultra runner Alexander Sorokin. For those unaware, an ultra run is anything further than a marathon, which is 26.2 miles. As you heard, Sorokin owns the world records for most miles in 24 hours, most miles in 12 hours, and now fastest 100 miles in history. His time for 100 miles? A staggering 10 hours, 51 minutes, 39 seconds. There are some who were at the race who actually say he hit 100 miles in 10 hours and 48 minutes. My friend and former running coach John Olson was the first person in North American history to run a sub-12 hour 100 miles. He did that in 2013. Think about how long North America has been in existence and how long people have inhabited said area. And it took until 2013 for someone to run a sub-12 hour 100 miles. Sorokin shaved an entire hour plus off that time in just eight years. Oh, if you're curious, and I'm sure you are because everyone is riveted by people running around in circles, Sorokin's average pace for 100 miles was six minutes, 32 seconds per mile. Let me tell you something. The average ultra runner can't hit 632 for one mile. Here's what that sounds like. Okay, I lied. That's actually not what 632 pace sounds like. That's Sorokin on a training run, running 626 pace. My fastest mile ever is 555. And that was 15 years ago. My fastest marathon was 8.32 pace per mile. And I was dying at the end of that. I can't fathom 6.32 for 100 miles. Incidentally, it's not too late to start a New Year's resolution. Why do I say that? Because Sorokin only started running in 2013. And he did it to get in shape. At the time, he was 32 years old. He weighed 220 pounds. And, according to him only sat around and drank and smoked all day. Knowing that just makes me want to kick him in the shins, but I can't run a 632 mile, so his shins are safe. Now, as head-scratching as all that is, it's maybe not as perplexing as the scene everyone is still talking about. Antonio Brown, that's Antonio Brown without his uniform, we are told, without his jersey, and running out of the field. I've always seen Antonio Brown as petulant, and I figured he got that way because he's been a dominant football player ever since high school, and he's so used to getting special treatment that when he doesn't, he flips his lid. Then I heard Tom Brady's post-game remarks. Obviously a, a difficult situation, and um, you know I think we all want you know him to to you know just I think everybody should find uh, you know hopefully do what they can to help him in ways that that. You know, he really needs it. And, um, you know, we all love him. We care about him deeply. So I started to rethink things a bit. And then I heard former Patriots star Rodney Harrison 
express his thoughts during an appearance on NBC Sports. I think he, he suffers from CTE. I think he he's definitely he's got some symptoms. He's snappy. He's mood swings. I mean, you look at the you look at this hit from Vontez Burfitt. You look at this hit, and he was completely out. I've never, I played 15 years in the league. I was never completely out like that. He's completely out. That is a concussion. That is something that's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. Listen, it's easy to pile on a guy when you only know him from his job and what you see on TV. And believe me, I was totally ready to join the fray. You don't make a spectacle and quit on your team like that. If you're pissed off or, as Brown claims, hurt, then just walk off the field into the locker room, sort it out after the game. But as we know, that's not what happened. And I'm going to believe Tom Brady and Rodney Harrison, guys who have been on the field and in the locker room with Antonio Brown. And if they say he needs help, then that makes it pretty damn official to me. Now, as someone who knows all about needing help, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to take my shirt off and see if that will get me down to a 632 mile. This has been The Week in Sports.